It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, October 21st, 2010. That's right. As you're listening to this, I'm somewhere in the middle of the air, flying west. Go west, young man. Okay, I'm doing it right now. And my arms are really, really tired. Yeah, little flying humor there. I'm on my way to uh, debate Doug Paget in the Pacific Northwest on whether or not hell is real. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said. And as a result of it, well, there's a well a big market need. You know, considering I've been in corporate America and I do have an MBA, there's a big market need for well, like you know, the truth, and uh, you know, the biblical discernment. Because there's a lot of guys who, um, well, they're pastors when they really have no business being pastors. Just something I've noticed. They have a really bad habit of, well, you know, twisting God's word and you know, making stuff up and. And so what we do is we have um, we have a, boti- a bovine scatology meter here at Fighting for the Faith, and I have it set to intolerant. Yeah, that's right. We're intolerant to bovine scatology, and uh, when we're doing that comparative work and uh, my uh, bovine scatology meter starts going bing, 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 whoop, whoop, I, then I let you know. And then we just open up our Bibles, and, you know, we go, oh, well, that's why that didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Keep me in your prayers. I obviously need prayer for many things, including uh, the upcoming debate. Uh, pray this. Pray that God, that God's word in the gospel would win the day on Saturday. That, that's our prayer, that God's word in the gospel would win the day. That's, that's what you need to pray. Yeah, because it, it's not Chris Rosebro who's going to defeat, defeat Doug Padgett. It's, it's God's word. It's Christ. And, you know, I just get to be the guy who sits there and go, oh, you know, here's what the message says. You know, it's what it says in the Bible. And, you know, well, you, 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 know, you get what I'm saying. So God's word gets to win, not me. But anyway, please keep me in your prayers. Today and tomorrow, I've got Friday Light Editions of Fighting for the Faith lined up for you. And what I'm going to be doing is turning the microphone over to J.I. Packer. And you're going, really? Is, is J.I. Packer in the Pirate Christian Radio studio? Well, no. Um, no, no. But it just sounds really cool. and It makes me feel so important <laughs> like i need that but it, it makes me feel so important when i can say i'm gonna turn the microphone over to j.i packer it's just um yeah I, I apparently i'm i'm in need of psychological counseling but uh, the good news is is that uh i do i found and of all places i found a series of lectures that j.i packer did on the attributes of god uh it, 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 he did this at a, some at a venue in canada but I found them on a site for a bunch of Anglicans in Sydney, Australia. So, you know, that's the nice thing about the Internet is just that, you know, things that occur in one place have a way of, like, you know, floating across the ocean. I, I think what happened is, is that somebody stuck a couple of MP3 files uh, in a bottle and they you know, they floated from, you know, uh, British Columbia in, in Canada. And they just floated across the Pacific down to Australia. And some Anglicans found it on the beach there. And they, and they uploaded it to their hard drive and thought this would be a great thing to share with everybody. You know, in my world, uh, things um, happen that way. So, but don't don't try to wake me up or say to me that's kind of like unfeasible because I like to think that it is. 
Anyway, so uh, for today we got uh, t- uh, two parts. Uh, t- uh, for today we got part one and tomorrow part two of uh, some lectures that uh, J.I. Packer did on the doctrine of the Trinity. I find them to be very scholarly, very biblically, well-argued, and, uh, and of course, because uh, J.I. Packer has a good thick British accent, it even lends that much more credibility to the, um, <laughs> to the presentation. You know, I, maybe I just need to get off the microphone here. Uh, so uh, without any further ado, here is J.I. Packer, part one on the doctrine of the Trinity. We turn to the truth of the Trinity, truth as I believe it to be, and I'm going to try and prove to you that it really is. Yesterday, you remember, we were looking at the question of language about God, and what we really saw was that if one accepts the historic Christian understanding of God's revelation, well, the problem about whether language concerning God has any meaning, and if so, whether its meaning is clear, that problem doesn't seriously arise because the model for the situation is that we listen first to hear what God has said in his revelation, and then we speak back to him and to each other about him in a way that echoes the language that he first used in talking to us about himself. And in terms of that model, one has a complete answer to the skepticism of the philosophers who feel the problem of meaningfulness in theological language just because like other philosophers, for the most part, for 200 years, they have ceased to believe in a God who speaks. Now, against that background, we turn to the doctrine of the Trinity. I reminded you of what we did yesterday because I now have to say the doctrine of the Trinity is a revealed doctrine emerging inescapably from specific things that God has told us about himself in the pages of Holy Scripture. We shall be turning up texts and joining, uh, joining elements of the biblical, the biblical witness together, and so constructing the doctrine of the Trinity in the proper Christian way, as I conceive, in which any doctrine is to be constructed. That, uh, that could be expressed differently by saying, we shall take perfectly seriously the language of Holy Scripture as instruction to us from God himself. And so we shall be led to the point where we receive the truth of the Trinity as part of God's witness to himself. Have before you, as we go through this material, the outline on the triunity of God that has been distributed to you. I'm not simply going to go through it, but every now and then I shall be referring to it because it covers more fully things about which, just because of the pressure of time, I shall have to say less than is really needed. Uh, You'll notice that at the top of this resource sheet, there's a reading list. And by going to that reading list, you can discover much more about the history and varieties of thought about the Trinity than I shall be able to tell you. Books of particular importance, perhaps, for doing that are number seven, R.S. Frank's book, The Doctrine of the Trinity. Number eight, E.J. Fortman, The Triune God. And number ten, Bethune Baker's book, J.F. Bethune Baker's book, Introduction to the Early History of Christian Doctrine. Uh, Of those books, the only one that covers the whole story from the days of the apostles right through to the present time is the book by Fortman, which reviews very well all the various views that have been taken of the nature of God from the beginning until now.
Let's move then into our subject, and thus, we, thus I begin. You have had the experience, I'm sure, just as I have, of going to the door where the bell has rung or the knocker has been knocked and finding on the doorstep modern Aryans. They don't, of course, call themselves that. They call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. But they're fully persuaded of what they believe about God, and they've come to persuade you. If you let them speak their peace, they won't talk to you directly about the nature of God. They will talk to you directly about a new world. But if you cross-question them and make them come clean as to what they believe about God, you will find that like the people called Aryans in the latter years of the 3rd and the early years of the 4th century, they don't regard Jesus Christ as divine in the same sense in which the Father is divine. They do regard Jesus Christ as the word that is the top creature in the whole string of creatures that God has made. The word is the top creature and the word took to himself humanity and his name now is Jesus Christ. You will find that they execrate the doctrine of the Trinity. They don't always understand it very well, but they are sure that it's bad medicine. And they will attack the churches. They frequently do attack the churches for upholding this doctrine on the when, when, say the Jehovah's Witnesses, there is no scriptural evidence for it. So speak the Jehovah's Witnesses. How do you get on when you're confronted by them? Have you got an answer for the things that they say? Many folk in Orthodox churches, churches whose beliefs in this matter I regard as right, do not know how to build up and deploy those beliefs or how to reason against those who hold a different view of God from the Trinitarian one. I hope that what I present to you this afternoon will give some help at this point. I hope it will give help at some other points also, but certainly at this one. I will grant the Jehovah's Witness or anyone else that the doctrine of the Trinity is not formally taught in the New Testament in the way that, say, the doctrine of justification is formally taught in such letters as Romans and Galatians. That is to say, there is no, there is no book of the New Testament in which the triunity of God is the subject. Mind, there is one long discourse of the Lord Jesus in which the triunity of God is very apparent and in which the line of thought simply could not continue. I mean, Jesus could not have said what he did say on any other basis. And that's the discourse immediately before Jesus' betrayal, which one reads in John chapters 14, 15, 16, and then the prayer of chapter 17. Nonetheless, I am going to maintain that the doctrine of the Trinity is inescapably there in the New Testament. And further, I'm going to maintain that it is the foundation of the gospel, no less. A line of thought which I love to use in preaching and in writing has to do with one of the brilliances of the Anglican prayer book, at least the Anglican prayer book as I was brought up on it in England. I say it that way because the prayer book has taken slightly different forms in different parts of the Anglican world, and it could be that here in Canada a change has been made from the specific detail that I'm going to tell you about now. But in the English version of the Anglican prayer book, a gospel reading is set for Trinity Sunday, that's the Sunday which follows Pentecost, or Whit Sunday as it used to be called in the days of my youth, 
And that gospel reading was, wait for it, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And I call that one of the brilliances of the prayer book. You know what's going on in that section. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's talking to Nicodemus about entry into the kingdom of God. He says that to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again of the Spirit. And then he says that the way to eternal life is to have, have faith in him. You remember, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's plain that John means us to understand that eternal life is the life of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the theme all through. And so what you've actually got in that passage, from one standpoint, is an exposition, an unfolding of the way of salvation, which involves the three persons. God, the Father, whose kingdom we're talking about, the Spirit of God, through whom folk are born again and enter the kingdom, and Christ lifted up as the substitute for sinners, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Now, the one on whom faith must be focused, the one on whom evidently the Spirit leads folk to focus their faith, so that by this means they do actually come into the kingdom. So the thought emerges of Father and Son and Holy Spirit together, in one great divine operation, namely the operation that brings sinners into the state of eternal life. And that, I believe, is how all through the New Testament we are taught to see salvation. It's the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, a team job, if you'll allow me to be very bold. It's the Father, Son, and Spirit, you see, acting together to bring sinners into the reality of eternal life, as I said. And if the truth of the Trinity is not confessed in your doctrine, it's hardly likely that you will be able to state the truth of salvation in a right way. And the Jehovah's Witnesses certainly can't. Uh, they believe that the Spirit is a divine influence, not, or, or, a, or a, a second uh, noble creature, but certainly not um, the third person of the Godhead. And what they believe about Christ is that Though indeed he died as a sacrifice for sins, yet you have to work your passage to heaven, not simply by believing um, Jehovah's Witness orthodoxy, but by earning your passage meritoriously, in just the same way that the medievals believe that after all that Christ has done, you must still earn your passage meritoriously by your good works. I don't think the Jehovah's Witnesses realize how medieval they are at that point, but they are going back behind the Reformation to the things that were taught before ever Luther and Calvin came along concerning the way of salvation. Well, let's leave the Jehovah's Witnesses. I've talked about them simply to try and alert you to the importance of being able to formulate the truth of the Trinity correctly. Uh, by so formulating it, you put yourself in a position to formulate the gospel correctly. And if you don't so formulate it, it's not very likely that you will formulate the gospel correctly. That's my point. I ask some questions. Question one. What does the doctrine of the Trinity mean? It is uh, a constru construction, you would perhaps use that word, a construction which the church has held to for 1600 years. It was made clear in the early years of the fourth century, and uh, the church corporately has held to that same construction ever since. I said 1,600 years, it's 15 and a half, really. 
It's a doctrine which has in it the following, uh, the following, uh, the following elements. One, and you can see them, by the way, uh, on the first sheet of my notes. Here I shall say, almost word for word, what the notes say. Thesis one, there is only one God, not three. Thesis two, the unity of this one God is complex. Within the unity of God, you have three subsistences. That's the word which has commonly been used by theologians speaking English. Um, the terms used in Latin and Greek to describe the three are terms which, as used in the second, third, fourth centuries, in which they first were used in this way, had a very vague meaning. So that instead of three subsistences, you might fairly say three somethings. That is to say, at this point, the formula doesn't presume to tell us the nature of the three. All it presumes to tell us is that there are three somethings quite distinct within the unity of the one, uh, the unity of the one God. And then they say, Scripture calls the three somethings, the three subsistences, Father, Son, and Spirit, gives them that name and pictures them as involved with each other in personal relations, and so we know that the three somethings are, in fact, persons, in at least as full a sense as that in which we call each other persons, and I'm going to argue in a much fuller sense. And that I believe to have been the view of the theologians of the, of the church, at least from the fourth century onwards, though it hasn't always been expressed. Uh, I grant this to anyone who knows the history in a very clear way. But this is the essence of the doctrine. So it's not saying that there are three roles played by one actor, um, as the late great Peter Sellers in one or two of his films played uh, three characters. It's not one person, God, appearing first as Father and then as Son and then as Holy Spirit. Uh, that actually is the heresy of modalism, the idea that God is one person appearing um, in sequence, playing three parts. Nor again is the assertion that there is one agent sustaining three relationships to us. Not exactly playing three roles, but relating to us in such a way that we think there must be three of him. That would be modalism again. What we're saying is that there are three co-equal, co-eternal persons, let's say for the moment personal centers, um, somethings, realities, each of which is you to the other two, and for each of which the other two are you, and each of which is I to himself. I say himself. I think I may warrantably do this, because in Scripture, all three persons are regularly spoken of in, mex in uh, masculine terms. Uh, modern feminist theology has uh, broached the notion that perhaps it would be proper to think of the persons of the Godhead, um, or one or two of them, if not all three, in female terms. For the moment, I simply say the Bible doesn't talk such language, and it's dangerous to be wise above what is written. So I'm going to talk consistently about three persons, each of whom uh, is he or him, um, and uh, as I say, he's I to himself, and the other two are you as far as he's concerned. Just as it would be in any human threesome, the big difference here is that these differentiations of personhood exist within a God who is one. And it's true Trinitarianism to be as insistent on the oneness of God as one is insistent on the threeness of the persons. So 
while it's standard for us to refer to the Christian God as he, it would be equally orthodox, though not equally standard and common, if we, re if we referred to the Christian God as they. The threeness is as fundamental as the oneness. This is the historic Christian, and so I maintain, biblical view. And there's no essential subordination, that's a phrase which theologians have used as a technical term, essential subordination of any one or two of them to any other. In other words, there's no hierarchy of being. Or putting that in the terms in which some third century theologians put it, it is not the case that the Son is God of a weaker strain than the Father, nor that the Holy Spirit is God of a weaker strain than both. When one says that the three persons are co-equal, the purpose of the statement is to bar that idea out. It's certainly true that in action, the Father initiates, and the Son and the Spirit, in their different spheres of activity, cooperate and comply and fulfill and execute the will of the Father. And you remember Jesus saying in John 5:19 that the Son can do nothing of himself. He does only what he sees the Father do. In that sense, he is entirely dependent on the Father for his initiatives. And you know that the Spirit comes at the sending of the Son and the Father, and that very phrase, sending, is enough to indicate that the Spirit comes to do the will of both. When you talk about the Trinity, by the way, don't talk about the parts of the Trinity as if God were divisible, and don't talk about the members of the Trinity as if God was a club. This constantly is happening in the written material which students at Trinity College submit to me, and I always scratch it out and put something rude in the margin. Because the notion, you see, is just the wrong notion. God is not a club, and God is not divisible. Talk about persons of the Trinity or persons of the Godhead. That's the classical Christian way of articulating the doctrine, and it does the job well enough. And equally, don't suppose that any of the three persons acts without the cooperating presence of the other two. The unity of God is expressed in action. And in all divine acts, all three persons are together. You have probably seen dance acts at the theater or on the television where you have three persons uh, dressed in similar costume who every now and then line up uh, facing you, the audience, or facing the camera in such a way that you can only see the person who's in front of the line. And then they separate out again doing their distinct bits of the dance and then they line up again so that they look like one person. I think that's a helpful parallel, a helpful analogy to the way in which, though the three persons are constantly working together in all that is divinely done, God is one God in action. The three persons are together, and again and again, um, all that is noticed by us at the receiving end of God's action is what one person of the Godhead is doing. In the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, the Spirit was there, the Spirit was with him, but the Spirit wasn't noticed. There's very little about the Spirit you'll find uh, in the Gospels. And what he said about the Spirit has to do with the ministry that he's going to fulfill. There's hardly anything said about the ministry that he's already fulfilling in the Lord Jesus. Just a little, but hardly anything. However, he was there. And Jesus said, the Father is with me always. The Father was there too. But the focus was on Jesus. In some of the things that the New Testament says about ministry, and equally about sanctity, the focus is put on the Holy Spirit. And from the 
texts which speak of the work of the Spirit, um, it would be possible to, or shall I say, in light of those texts, it would be possible to forget that the Son and the Father are there too when these activities of the Spirit are in, progress, in process. The three persons are in fact always together, let me say it again, although sometimes attention is focused specifically on one of them. Well, that all goes into the expounding of the complex unity of God, which is the second thesis uh, in the classic doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity that I believe the scriptures teach. Thesis one, there is one God only. Thesis two, the unity of this one God is complex in the manner described. And then thesis three is that the three persons cooperate according to a hierarchical pattern that reflects the way they exist together. That is, the Father sends and directs the Son, and with and through the Son, he sends and directs the Spirit. The Spirit never plays the Father's role. The Son never plays the Father's role. The Father never plays the Son's role, nor does the Spirit play the Son's role. Their pattern of working together is constant. In all that they do, the initiative is the Father's. The Son immediately picks up the initiative which the Father gives him and falls in with it, and the Spirit becomes the executive of the Godhead, fulfilling the will of the Father and the Son. It always was so, always, and always will be so. It's, this is called, at least called by the theologians, economic subordination. That is, uh, the pattern of the subordination of the Son and the Spirit to the Father in practice as distinct from the idea of essential subordination, the idea of the Son and the Spirit being somehow inferior to the Father in being, that notion, as I said a moment ago, is to be excluded completely from one's thinking. It isn't true, but the thought of the economic subordination of the Son and the Spirit to the Father, that thought is true. That's what's revealed in Scripture. The Father initiates, and the Son and the Spirit do the Father's will. These, then, are the three theses which together make up the classic Christian doctrine of the Trinity. You can see there's more here than our human minds can ever fully understand. You can see, in other words, that in the theologian's sense of this word, the doctrine of the Trinity is mystery. Mystery doesn't mean there an area of fuzz any more than it means a puzzle which, uh, by careful reflection can be dissolved, like the, like the puzzle, the whodunit puzzle, in a mystery story. The mystery is dispelled in the last chapter, where you're told who did it and how and why. Mystery here is being used in a quite different sense. It's a perfectly precise sense. It's a theologian's sense. It's standard amongst the professionals in the business. Mystery means a divine fact of which we can say it is so, because the Bible assures us of that, but concerning which we cannot tell how it can be so. Okay, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay a couple of bills. When we get back, we will continue with part one of The Doctrine of the Trinity by J.I. Packer. He's doing a fantastic job, by the way. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, since J.I. Packer won't be answering any emails regarding The Doctrine of the Trinity, if you want to fire them off to me, if something that you have a question, send them off to me. I'll try my hand at it. Uh, fight back at, uh, not, not fight back, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. 
Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. There's a bunch of folk in the church today claiming that the doctrine of the Trinity isn't important. They're dead wrong. This deals with the very nature of God himself as he has revealed himself. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we are in a partnership together. You and me, we work together. That's right. I do all the work, and then you grow and learn and enjoy the program and benefit from it. And then you partner with us financially so that we, we can continue, well, bringing this program to you and reaching our, you know, and expanding what we do and uh, continuing to reach a, an ever-increasing audience around the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, just look right in the middle of the page of the homepage there. Scroll down just a smidge, and you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute uh, not a lot of money, only $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And you're thinking, you know, that's not a lot of money. How how are you able to survive off that? I'm glad you asked because what we're, what we're trying to do is uh, is get, spread out across our listeners uh, and have everybody you know be able to contribute a little bit. And by everybody contributing a little bit, it equals a lot so that we are able to uh, pay our bills every month, even during the lean summer months. And uh, and of course, if you would like to uh, you know to contribute more than that, you can do so by making you can make a one time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that along to Post Office Box five zero eight. Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, well, let's continue with uh, part one of uh, J.I. Packer's lecture on the doctrine of the Trinity. Here is J.I. Packer. We know that it's actual, although we don't know how it's possible. That's the nature of a mystery in theology. In fact, just about everything that the Bible teaches us about God is mystery when you get right down to it. How God overruled the writing of the Bible so that 
what men wrote out of their hearts was first and foremost what God was saying to us out of his heart is mystery. We acknowledge it in the doctrine of inspiration, but we don't pretend to know how the thing can be. It's outside our experience, and we can't imagine how such a thing could happen in our experience. So we have to acknowledge the mystery of its having happened in the experience of the Bible writers. In the same way, the regeneration of the, uh, a believer so that one's sinful, self-centered heart is changed and one's disposition becomes no longer a play God, kill God, fight God, anti-God disposition and becomes a disposition reflecting the, um, the, the motivation of the Lord Jesus himself, the desire that is to love and serve and please and honors, honor God. That's mystery as far as we're concerned. We know that it's happened. The regenerate know that it's happened in them. They know that the deepest thing in them now is to love and honor and worship and adore and serve and please and in all those ways know God. And they know that this is something which wasn't in them by nature. They know that this is the work of God who has renewed their hearts, but they don't know how he did it. Again, the fact is acknowledged, even though the method, how it could happen, remains unknown to us. These are just examples of mysteries in theology. I could go on for a long time illustrating, but I think the thought should be clear by now. What I'm saying about the Trinity is that it is in this sense a mystery. Scripture reveals that the three persons interrelate in the manner described. Scripture doesn't tell us how the one God is also three persons, how the one God is tripersonal, as I like to express it. Uh, there's no human analogy to that, really. We should be coming back to this thought later, but let me give it to you right now. There's no human analogy to the Trinity. Uh, we have to say this is the mystery of God's essential being, and it is beyond us to understand it. Okay, these, are the <coughs> these then are the basic ingredients in the truth of the Trinity which we're exploring. I ask another question. We've seen what the doctrine means. Our question now is, Whence was it learned? Where and how does the New Testament teach it? I say New Testament because it is a matter of New Testament revelation. The Old Testament is rightly read by, by New Testament Christians in light of what, as Christians, they know. And so they rightly read back into the Old Testament the truth of the threeness of God, and they see at least hints and uh, indirect indications of plurality in God's being in some of the things that the, the, that the Old Testament says. But you can understand that a Jew who only has the Old Testament will not learn the doctrine of the Trinity in a clear way from it. Because it isn't made clear in the New Testament. It is a revelation that came with the Lord Jesus. So I say, it's from the New Testament in the first instance that we derive the doctrine. Then we read it back into what the Old Testament says uh, in the manner described. What does the New Testament say to shut us up to belief in this high and awesome mystery? Well, on the one hand, it affirms the deity of the, the, the Lord Jesus. There are many texts that do that. And with that, in certain places, it makes clear also the personal deity of the Holy Spirit. And yet, on the other hand, it never affirms tritheism, the doctrine of two gods, 
Instead, it, inserts, it, it asserts that there is one God and one God only to whom all glory must be given, just as the Old Testament had asserted before it. Here are some of the passages. For the deity of Christ, remember the words of Thomas at the end of John's Gospel, where Jesus appears to him and uh, takes him at the overbold word that he'd spoken the week before. He says, Thomas, uh, you wanted to... Um, put your hand into my wound, my wounded side. You wanted to run your hand over the nail prints in my hands. Here I am, you do it. It doesn't say that Thomas did it. It does say that Thomas bowed before Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. And it doesn't tell us that Jesus discouraged Thomas from talking to him in such terms. It does say rather that Jesus pronounced him blessed because you've seen, you believed. This is true faith that you're now expressing. And then he adds the last of the last beatitude, blessed are those who've not seen, but yet believe, just as you do, Thomas. And then John comes in almost at once to say, yes, um, and there are many more evidences, many more signs uh, that Jesus did, which uh, are not written here, but what I've written so far, and uh, the story of Thomas is among the, in the signs and indications that he's referring to. What is written is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing they have life in his name. In other words, here is John affirming um, that he is teaching or wishing to teach and hoping to lead his readers to the same faith in Jesus Christ that Thomas has just voiced. John's readers, so John hopes will for themselves come to say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. It's very explicit, isn't it? And the divine sonship of Jesus is affirmed also in the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 1 and in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. Uh, perhaps Colossians is the passage that we should read here. The language is striking, it's rich, it probably is uh, a case of Paul deliberately using the terms that the Colossians were using in their own theological discussions. Um, if you look up Colossians 1.15, you see it goes like this. He, this is the son, who, son of God's love referred to in the end of verse 13. He is the image of the invisible God. That word image is a weighty word, the commentaries will tell you. Um, the thought is that he is the reflection and the presentation to us of all that is in the God whose image he bears. Uh, he is the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created. Firstborn there clearly means he existed, that, that, he, that Christ existed prior to all that was created. The opening words of verse 16 are explaining that. He was not one of the creatures, for by him all creatures were created. And uh, if he were one of the creatures as the Arians and the Jehovah's Witnesses think, it would have been necessary for Paul to say, by him all things were created except himself. He was a creature not self-created, but created by the Father. Look at verse 17 now. After the last words of 16, which repeat the statement, all things were created by him and for him, Paul says, he is before all things. Um, here again is a form of words which distinguishes the Son from the creatures. He is before all things, and in him all things, that is, all created things, hold together. Uh, as it's said in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Those are the key things said about the Lord Jesus. 
or rather about the eternal Son of God, for whom, of whom Jesus is the proper human name, and the testimony is really very clear indeed. And if now you look over to Romans chapter 9, verse 5, uh, you will read a disputed text, but one which can only be translated naturally in one way. And you find that natural translation in the old King James, and now in the, in the New International Version that I have before me. Um, of the Jews is traced the human ancestry of Christ, says my NIV. Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. He is God over all, to be praised forever. Um, modern exegetes, in many cases, have balked at that translation, and they have uh, posited something very unnatural, namely a period, full stop, after the word Christ, and then the rest of the sentence, God, who is over all, be praised forever, amen. That becomes an exclamation of doxology. But that isn't natural. There's small print about Greek grammar that could be adduced here. I'm not going to adduce it. I'm simply telling you. Uh, you will find that the NIV translation is defended by the most recent of the really learned commentaries on the Greek text, namely that by Cranfield in the International Critical Commentary series, and his arguments are quite conclusive. Well, there's further evidence for the deity of Jesus, which is all that we're concerned about at the moment. One can now add to that this fact, that all through the New Testament, Jesus is called Lord. And Lord in Greek, I must use the Greek word here to make my point, is kurios. And kurios is the word which the Greek Old Testament, that is the Septuagint translation of the original Hebrew, used every time that the Hebrew Yahweh, which the old King James rendered as Jehovah, um, came up, that is literally some thousands of times. It's always kurios. So when Jesus in the New Testament is called kurios, the Lord Jesus, there's a strong implication of personal deity in that very word. Uh, especially when in such passages as Romans 10 and verse 13, um, we read, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That, of course, is a word quoted from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And the Lord, as you will see if you read the passage on from verse 9, the Lord who is being referred to there is Jesus. It's clear that, Jesus, that Paul is implying the deity of Jesus. First of all, by suggesting that folks should call on his name because the biblical way is only to worship God. You don't call on the name of creatures. And secondly, by identifying him as the Lord, to whom that text in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, really refers. I could go on this way for some time. The New Testament evidence about the deity of Jesus as a matter of belief and teaching on the part of the New Testament authors is very strong and very clear. And in John's Gospel, of course, you meet the Lord Jesus identifying himself as the Son of God dozens and dozens of times. And uh, using that phrase, Son of God, I should add, in contexts which make him personally the object of faith, him personally, the one whom God the Father wills that men should praise and adore. And this, again, is as explicit as can be. There's relatively less teaching about the personhood and deity of the Holy Spirit, but it's there. And I'm going to point to just one text which makes it very clear. But person, sorry, that make, makes the deity very clear, but personhood first. Personhood is something that needed to be established because 
the Spirit of God in the Old Testament uh, is spoken of as if he were simply God in action. That is, there's no personal distinction between the Spirit and Yahweh himself, whose Spirit, he, uh, whose spirit is being spoken of. And in the New Testament, the Greek word for Spirit is a neuter word. Now, do you know what I'm talking about? In Greek grammar, uh, Greek language, unlike English, you've got three genders and every word has a gender. It's masculine, feminine, or neuter. It's a he or she or it word. Well, the Greek word for spirit used all the way through the New Testament is pneuma, which is an it word. So something needed to be said to show that the person referred, or, or the, the being referred to as the pneuma, the spirit of God, is a person for all that the term referring to him is an it word rather than a he word. And this is made plain by the verbs that are used of the Spirit's activity. The Spirit speaks, teaches, can be grieved, can be lied to. You couldn't use such words uh, of one who wasn't a personal being in his own right. Again, we read, the Spirit makes intercession for the saints. Romans 8.26 and only a person can make intercession for other persons. The text I wanted to put, call your attention to now is Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where the writer is doing what the writer of nearly all the New Testament documents does. Uh, at least certainly the writer, the writer of the letter of, of, of all the uh, writers of the New Testament letters do. He's starting his letter in the way that ancient letters usually were started, with words of greeting. And in this case, it's Christian words of greeting, just as it is in all the letters of Paul. Grace and peace to you. This is to the seven churches in the province of Asia to whom he's writing, and we're into about halfway through verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and, and who was and who is to come. That's the Father. And from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Well, we know who the Father is. We know who Jesus Christ is. And the seven spirits are pictured here as seven, because seven, all through the book of Revelation, where a lot of number symbolism appears, seven is the number of divine perfection. I guess that's familiar ground to you. There are other references in, uh, Revelation, in, in Revelation to the Holy Spirit as seven spirits. Uh, if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, you'll find it there. Uh, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit. Any reader of John's Gospel knows that. Uh, then again, if you look at chapter 4, verse 5, you find that in the vision of heaven, um, before God's throne, seven lamps are blazing, and these are the seven spirits of God. Seven, let me say it again, is the number which symbolizes divine perfection. And there's yet one more reference, chapter 5, verse 6. Uh, the Lamb, standing in the midst of the throne, has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Once again, the number seven is pointing to divine perfection. The Lamb, the glorified Christ, sends the Spirit. Again, any reader of John's Gospel knows that. And that's the truth that's being presented. The seven spirits, then, before the throne, uh, represent the Holy Spirit. And the order of the benediction in verses 4 and 5 of Revelation chapter 1 is that grace and peace, these divine gifts, are to come to the seven churches from the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Now we know that the Father is divine, we know that the Son is divine. 
it's unbelievable that the one who is sandwiched between them in this order, Father, Spirit, Son, is not on the same footing as the two persons who, so to speak, flank him. I put it to you that this benediction, this uh, word of greeting, could, this, it's a prayer really, may the Father, the Spirit, and the Son grant you grace and peace. I put it to you that this benediction could never have been written if John, who wrote the, wrote the Revelation, had not believed that the Father, the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are on the same footing, three divine persons, in the unity of the one God. And now, with this, link Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28 and verse 19, where the risen Christ appears to his disciples and gives them their marching orders. Go and make disciples of all the nations, says the Savior, baptizing them in the name. Note it says name, singular. It doesn't say names. This is one name. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Again, there's a point in Greek grammar here with which I'm not going to bother you. I'm simply going to tell you that the absence of the article before the Son and the Spirit shows that there's no emphasis here on the thought of the Son and the Spirit as distinct persons in whose separate names the candidates are to be baptized. It is one name, and the name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And name, in the Bible, as I expect you know, regularly signifies the nature or the being of the person who bears it. A name in the Bible isn't just a label. A name is again and again a revelation of what God has in mind for this person, what this person is in God's sight. A name like Abraham, father of nations, or the name Jesus, which means God is Savior. These names were given by God, and they were given because they were given to proclaim the significance of the person to whom they were given. Well, now, here is a name that Jesus is announcing, and it's in this name that disciples, believers, are to be baptized. And the name is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Karl Barth, rather sweetly as well as rather wittily, said, this is the Christian name of God. The name, that is, by which Christians know God. To us, he, the one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The link of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as constituting together the name, that is to say, the revealed nature of God, is surely conclusive. And then in addition to that, there are many triadic passages, and some of these you'll see listed down at the bottom of the first sheet of the handout. Uh, the triadic passages are passages in which the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is spoken of in the same breath, and it's like three strands of thought being blended together so as to make a single tapestry. The work of God that's being described in these passages is a work in which Father, Son, and Spirit are all three involved. Uh, Romans 8, the whole chapter, is an example of this. Much is said about the Father, much is said about the Son, and much is said about the Spirit. Uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, as I said earlier, is another case in point. So is the great sentence with which Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. So is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, the very familiar words of what we call the grace, Paul's exit line, whereby he signs off at the end of this long and rather painful letter. 
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which phrase means either a share in the Holy Spirit and his ministry, or the fellowship among yourselves, which the Holy Spirit creates and sustains. Commentators divide as to which of those two meanings is the more likely one. Uh, it doesn't matter for our purposes. Our purpose is simply to note how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are brought together here. May the grace of Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. This is your Christian heritage. It involves the ministry of the three persons. May you enjoy that heritage to the full. Uh, there, there are other passages too. We're not going to go through them all. They're all exhibiting in the same way the togetherness of Father, Son, and Spirit in the gracious work of salvation. Oh, let's take just one more. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6. And ask ourselves as we read them, why does Paul speak in this way? There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Look back to verse 3, and it's Jesus. You'll see it's Jesus the Lord to whom he's referring. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Why does Paul change the reference in these parallel statements from Spirit to Lord Jesus and then from Lord Jesus to God? Why? Because he wants to bring before our minds the thought of the three persons who are together in all those gracious operations manward, which bring about salvation, spiritual life, ministry, fellowship, and all the realities of discipleship and church life. I hope that you think, as I must confess, I think, that this is sufficient evidence to show that though there's no New Testament passage in which the Trinity is taught in the way that justification is taught in Romans 1 through 5, nonetheless, Trinitarian thinking is part of the warp and the woof and the substance and the content of New Testament teaching. And if the New Testament writers and witnesses had not been, from Jesus onwards, had not believed in the togetherness of these, the three divine persons in the work of our salvation, they could not have said some of the things that they do say. In that sense, one may truly affirm that the Trinity is inescapably implicit in the New Testament. And that's the position which I undertake to defend against all comers. So this is, this is the source whence the doctrine of the Trinity is learned. It's learned from the scriptures. And it is a biblical doctrine, just as justification by faith is a biblical doctrine. We have two more questions to ask. I shall go on to dwell on the question, what's the importance of the, Holy Tr of the doctrine of the Trinity? And then finally, um, we'll do a very quick look at some of the high spots of the history of thought about this doctrine in answer to my fourth question, how is the truth of the Trinity best stated? But we'll do that, I think, after our break. Okay, that's part one of J.I. Packer on the Doctrine of the Trinity. Tomorrow we'll pick this up and uh, be playing part two of his uh, lecture series that he did on the Doctrine of the Trinity. And, of course, if you have any questions regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, uh, you can uh, forward them along to me. I'd be happy to answer any Trinitarian questions. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, 
May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. 